0: Hey, hey, good to be with you guys tonight. God is good in spite of us, not because of us, thankfully, that in spite of us, he's good. And uh, yeah, well, uh, Michael is uh, back on the East Coast at the University of Virginia, if you didn't already hear, kind of helping out and working with uh, a bunch of other people doing evangelism on that campus with Ravi Zacharias and some other uh, people. So we're missing Michael and Amanda and Devante and who else? Allison and, Allison. Allison and Jeremiah. Yes, thank you. All right. Well, hey, um, we'll just begin our time with a word of prayer. And uh, actually, let's, let's read, and then we're going to pray about what we just read, and we'll launch from there. Um, one of the things that Uh, Michael is now kind of setting the agenda for when we pick up a book or whatever, and it's been on his heart to take up the book of Romans. So um, I'm going to introduce that book, and maybe we'll read the first uh, 17 verses and talk about some of that, but it's going to be kind of a combination of almost three different sermons tonight, not to confuse you or lose you, but I want to First of all, give a background on the book of Romans so you can know something about it. And then I'm going to take you through kind of almost chapter by chapter. And then I'm going to take you through section by section. And then I'm going to break down the gospel and uh, take one word in that book and see where it's used. Boom, 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 four times. And uh, finish up preaching the gospel out of those four, that that word four times. So, Anyway, so that's a preview of where we're at. Um, so who is a who's a good reader here tonight? Hey, hey, come on up, come on up, yay! All right, um, nice and, and uh, smooth. Romans one, the verse first seventeen verses. Can you handle it? Right through there. Yep.
1: Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you are also among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's longing to visit Rome. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times, and I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impact to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might be a harvest among you, just as I have among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel, all to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of the God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteousness, we will live by faith.
0: Thank you, thank you. Let's give him a hand for that. did a good job. Okay, why do we study a book? What 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 uh, what benefit is there of like just taking a book and going right through it? Somebody way in the back, go ahead. The big picture, okay, Hunter. OK, so um, if you just like one of those people who says, you know, I'm not very consistent and not very good at this. So I'm just going to like open my Bible and whatever I see, I'm going to read that. And then the next time I'm going to read something else. And you, you don't get the context or the flow of how a book goes together. The Apostle Paul in the book of Second Timothy, he says something like this. Hold fast the form of sound words. Or that could be translated an outline of sound words or a pattern of sound words. Some of you might know that the Apostle Paul, though he was a great preacher, also um, was, was somebody who was a tent maker. And he'd go into some places so he didn't have to take the money from people. He just makes some tents on the side. And when you do that, you have to take that tent and you, okay, this is going to be the front, and this is going to be the side, and this is gonna be the back. You would have a pattern and you would mark out that pattern. Some of you have seen somebody sew something. like my wife, when I first started dating her, she would sew clothes. and so she would she would uh, take a pattern. It's like really fine paper that she'd get it with Joanne Fabrics, my favorite store. I'm lying, okay. I don't know what it is about guys. We just don't like fabric stores. It's just like patient. It's one of those things that, you know, if your wife someday likes to sew, that you just patiently go there and you kind of stand around and stare at the ceiling and pull out your iPhone and look at something that you care about, you know, see how many likes you got on Facebook or whatever, okay. But it's just not my favorite thing, but If you don't have a pattern, you don't cut a straight line. In another place he says, be diligent to show yourself approved to God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed because he's rightly dividing the word of truth. So kind of just a story, and we're going to open in prayer in just a second. A guy wanted to read the Bible, and he just thought, well, I'm just going to do this randomly. So he said, I'll just open my Bible. I'm feeling a little depressed. I'll just open my Bible and see what word God has for me. So he threw open his Bible, and he looked in the other way, put his finger down on a verse, and then he looked at it. And it said, Judas went and hanged himself. He said, I don't like that. I've got to find something different. So he opened his Bible again, and he put his finger down on another verse, and then he looked to see what it was, and it said, go and do thou Likewise. That is not the way to read the Bible. See, you get in all kinds of trouble if you don't have a pattern of sound words, if you don't know how to cut a straight line through the word of truth, rightly handling or dividing or cutting that pattern where you don't take verses out of context and build life doctrines, but you take each scripture in the context of the whole. Does that make sense? So... I like to say that if you study just in a topical sense, and there's a place for that, I don't mind, last week we we just preached kind of topically a little bit here. We took a topic of, you know, giving the devil a foothold and demonic stuff in your life and strongholds, okay? But we did take some passages and sort of consistently teach right through that passage and see what's there, because if you just hear topical messages, or that's all you listen to in the church where you're at. uh, Topical messages grow mushroom Christians. Expository messages, where you take a book of the Bible and preach right through it, which is what we're going to be doing here at Thrive over this next little season, you grow oak tree Christians. So I'm excited for the topical messages here, and I I love the spiritual pep talks. They last at least 15 minutes after you're out the door. But when you take the Word of God and give expository teaching and teach through it in a way that makes sense, where you see the whole thing go together, you're not just pulling things out of context. You grow in a, a spiritual depth in your life it's like an oak tree that when the storms of this life come or where the fiery darts of the enemy come, you stand. Amen? So we're going to, that's why we're going through a book and not just always a topical message. So let's pray and I'll kind of give you a summary of the book of Romans and then we'll go from there. Father, we just thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for everyone here. I, I pray that You will open the eyes of our understanding, that the eyes eyes of our, our understanding would be enlightened and open to see your truth and to better understand how your word goes together. Help me as I try to unpack this tonight. Just bless your word. We ask it in the name and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay. So what's the book of Romans about? Just a little background on the book. The book of Romans, of course, is written by the Apostle Paul, who we know in Acts 9 when he got called uh, to serve God. He got saved. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And uh, God says, I, you're a chosen vessel, and you're going to bear my name to the Gentiles. And you're going to be persecuted. So Paul goes off on these missionary journeys, and he is taking the gospel to Gentiles. But he always had this huge heart for the Jewish people. He always wanted to go up to Jerusalem. And you know, if you remember in the book of Acts, one time Paul was just dead set on going up there. And people were telling him in every city, if you go there, you're going to end up in prison. You're going to be bound. People even like, one guy took a girdle and he wrapped it around his arm. And he said, this is the way you're going to be bound, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem. And uh, although he was an apostle called to the Gentiles, And he did end up in Rome. He certainly tried to go to Jerusalem because he had a big heart for the Jews. At one point in the book of Romans, he said, I wish that I myself could be cursed, almost like end up in eternal damnation, if all God's people, the Jews, could be saved. That was his heart for the gospel. That's crazy. but That's how much he loved Jewish people. But God had called him the Gentiles. It's almost like God says, Paul, if you won't leave those Jews alone, I'll give you put you in a place where you can't get at him. But the book of Romans is a book that's written to both Jews and Gentiles. The part that we just read, there's a lot of references to Gentiles. But he's going to say in the next chapter, what advantages there to being a Jew? Much, chiefly in every way. And he says, they were given the law. They had all this responsibility. So he, he's writing both to Jews and to Gentiles. Okay, let's make it simple here. Basically, if you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile. So most of you are Gentiles. Got a new name for yourself, right? So it's just helpful in studying the Bible to understand it. Sometimes Paul in translations will use the term Greeks, because if you weren't a Jew, you were one of those pagan Greeks, right? Now, what happened was... I believe, Scripture's not totally clear on this, but I think if we put it all together, that there were some people who were Jews that had been scattered all over the place, but on these certain feasts that would happen certain times of the year, one being the Passover, one being the Feast of Pentecost, okay, Feast of Tabernacles, these Jewish people would travel up to Jerusalem, and if you remember the time of the crucifixion of Jesus, remember he wants to celebrate the Passover with his disciples? And their, their disciples are like, where are we going to do this? I mean, the city is like just packed with people because people would come from all over the world. And they were, that's, that's where the money changers made all this money. And people would take you know, bring their little lamb all the way from where they came from. They're going to offer it in Jerusalem as a sacrifice in the temple and bring it to the priest. And they get it all the way up there, and some greedy priest would look at it and say, ah, got a little blemish on it right here. It ain't going to be good enough. You've got to buy one of ours. I mean, it's going to cost you triple, but that's how we make our money. And Jesus, like, overthrew the tables, all right? But that's what was going on. So the disciples were like, where do you want us to prepare the Passover? Jesus says, go in the city. You will see a man carrying water. In those days, the women carried the water, so this was unusual. You follow him to the house where he enters in. And that guy's going to show you a large upper room, all furnished and ready to go. There you make ready for us to celebrate the Passover together. And, of course, we know in that room is where Judas betrayed him, and Jesus got down and washed the disciples' feet and gave him the last words of John 17 before he goes to the cross. Right? So it was during one of those feasts, not the Passover feast. But the Feast of Pentecost, that a bunch of people came up to Jerusalem. And if you read the story of Peter preaching a sermon, it mentions Parthenians and all these people from all over, names them all off, that had come up to Jerusalem. And that is, you know, after Jesus had gone to the cross and risen from the dead and ascended back into heaven, 40 days later, they're there on the Feast of Pentecost and what happens? The Holy Spirit is poured out. And 3,000 people are saved. Amen. Somebody, one sermon, 3,000 people are saved. And about a day or two later, 5,000 more are saved. And a lot of those people were people who had come up from foreign places. And some of those people were people who had come up from Rome. Those people went back, and they started meeting and worshiping as Christians. Paul, at the time that he writes this letter, had never been there. Okay? We do, I think Scripture's clear that he ends up there at the end of his life. (laughs) He goes there as a prisoner, not on his own accord. But here, he's writing. So, let's just say this, that the early church at Rome originally was mostly Jewish. And it grew and grew in that among that Jewish culture. But some Gentiles came to know the Lord as well. But then there was a certain persecution, if you read history, that launched. And a lot of the Jews were driven out of Rome for about 10 years. So now that church is primarily Gentile. But when the persecution kind of stops and there's a break, the Jews start pouring back in. So now you have a church that consists of Jew and Gentile that had one time been prominently Jew, but at the time of this letter is now prominently Gentile. And one of the things that happens in churches and in cultures when people come from different ethnic backgrounds is that sometimes parties and sex and rivalries occur, which is a terrible enemy of the gospel. You want to find a church that is very ineffective gospel-wise, evangelistic, uh, evangelistically challenged? Find one. You'll find the leadership is at odds with each other. People are at odds with the pastor. The pastor's at odds with people. It just cripples that church from doing any kind of effective evangelism because Jesus said the way the world is going to know that I was sent of the Father is because of your love one for another in your unity. They'll know we are Christians by our love, okay? The fact that you love each other is going to be the most powerful apologetic for the gospel, Christians going together in unity. But what it crept in in the book of Romans is there were the Jewish sect that said, they're Christians, I'm a Jew and I'm better than you. And then there were these Gentiles that said, I'm a Gentile and God is through with you Jews. And that is the background. If you don't see that, you will never completely understand this book. Okay? So Paul's going to write this as a letter to bring unity to those people. He's going to show that the Jews were God's chosen people originally in the Old Testament. God, in his sovereignty, chose them out. Romans 9. Romans 9. But in Romans 10, because of their hard-heartedness, God kind of set them aside, okay, as a nation. There's still a remnant that are truly the Lord's and saved, but the majority of them have kind of like been set aside. In the book of Acts, at one point, Paul says, lo, we turn to the Gentiles, because they're going to hear this message. You guys had your chance. The day of Pentecost is mostly Jewish people. All through, the, the outline of the book of Acts is you, will re, verse 8 of chapter 1, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses, he's talking to his disciples, you will be witnesses unto me, Jesus says, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the furthermost parts of the earth. And that's how Acts breaks down. It starts in Jerusalem. It spreads a little bit more to Judea. And then it goes to Samaria. And in chapter 9, the, Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles gets saved, in chapter 12, Peter, who was the main guy to the Jews, kind of fades out. That's the last you read of him in the book. And now it's sort of moving to the furthermost parts of the earth. That's how the gospel started, that's how it was spread. So Paul says, You, uh, the Gen- um, Jews got chosen out as a nation, but because of their rejection, uh, God chose to sort of harden them, and he's dealing now with Gentiles but he's doing that to provoke Jews to jealousy. When the Jews see what God's doing with them, they're going to believe. In other words, you guys need each other. You can't say one of you is better than the other. You both need each other. He's going to finish the book with a verse like this in chapter 15, so that with one heart talking about both Jew and Gentile as one unified and one mouth you will give glory to God that's his aim to get these people to do it but in the meantime he's going to use the example of the gospel and how God amazingly worked with Jews and he amazingly worked with Gentiles because both were lost both were in need of salvation, and he reached out in love to both of them. So you better live in harmony with each other. That's chapter uh, 14 and 15. Don't judge each other. Receive each other. Live in harmony with each other, and you want to be where you've got one mouth and one heart glorifying God, and that's the way churches should be. That's the way Thrive should be. We should be people who live in harmony with each other, I shouldn't just walk in and thrive, and here's my cool friends, I'll hang with them, and never mind that one person who comes in the door who's new tonight, who's all by themselves, or that other person who goes to that other kind of church that isn't the same as my church, but God wants us unified, he wants us to appreciate each other, okay? And that's a little bit of what the book of Romans is about. I know you don't hear that because you all hear that it's justification by faith and so on. And it is that too, and we're going to bring that out. But I wanted you to see the big, big picture, and then you'll see how Paul draws it. He's going to show in chapter 1, I'm just going to take you right through the book, that the pagans, the Gentile pagans, that's what we were, okay, are without excuse. People say, well, what about the pagan who lives on some little island in the South Seas who nobody ever came and preached the gospel to him? Is God really fair? Is he going to send that guy to hell because he never heard the gospel message? Some of you have struggled with stuff like that. What he's going to say is the pagans are without excuse because they have the witness of creation. He's going to show in chapter 1, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, but he says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities and his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen and been understood from what has been made, that's creation, so that people are without excuse. Do you know if you really don't know a lot, you're still without excuse to not know there's a God. David writes in Psalms 14, the heavens declare, he's talking about the stars and the planets, they declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows up his handiwork. You can see God's masterpiece in creation through the stars and the planets. Do you know that if our earth was a few miles closer to the sun, we would fry? And if we were a few miles farther from the sun, we would freeze. And if the earth spun a few miles an hour faster than it does, we would fly off of it because gravity. And if it went slower, there'd be other problems as a result of that. You have to be an ignorant fool to not believe in creation. I say to people, there's no such thing as a true atheist. Deep down inside, everyone knows there's a God. But the reason they don't want to admit it, and the reason people like Richard Dawkins spend a lifetime trying to fight against that idea is because, I mean, imagine spending a lifetime fighting against something you don't believe in, the reason So there's no such thing as a true atheist. The reason people don't want to admit there's a God is because if they do, it might mean that they would have to change their life, and they're not ready to do that. So they'll lie to themselves and say, well, or to other people, I don't believe there's a God. Just remember when you're witnessing to them, their conscience is on your side. We're going to see that in a minute. So creation bears witness. God's Word says people are without excuse. Psalms 14, as we already said, The heavens are declaring the glory of God, and Furman is showing his handiwork. It says, day after day, talking about the stars in creation, they pour forth speech. In other words, you said, wait a minute, I thought, are the stars actually talking? God says they are. They are preaching to anybody and everybody of the amazing presence and power of an eternal God. All right? If I went down to the Port of Tacoma and I showed you one of those ships, and I said to you, this was not always a ship. It used to just be some pieces of minerals that were floating in the ocean. But after billions of years, the minerals came together and formed iron. And then the iron formed a ship, okay? And after a while, engines evolved. And then a control system with a steering mechanism and something to control the speed and navigation system. It all just happened. You'd look at me like I was a little crazy. But you know that the human body is a million times more complicated and more mysterious in many ways than a stupid ship in a harbor. It's true. The human eye. Amazing to study that. So let's just you know, right now, what he says in chapter 1 is the pagans, the people who claim they don't believe in a God, those Gentiles out there who haven't heard the gospel, they are without excuse because they have the witness of creation. The Jew, in chapter 2, is without excuse because he had the witness of the law. He was given the law, he just couldn't keep it. See, the law uh, It's kind of like a mirror. It shows us we have a dirty face, but it doesn't wash our face. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. Okay? By all the law, it says things like, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery. And Jesus expanded on that and says, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has committed it already in his heart. The law says, don't kill. Jesus said, if you hate your brother, you're already a murderer. I'm guilty. I've been guilty on both of those accounts. I hold up the mirror of God's word and I find out that I'm a sinner. It's not politically correct, religiously correct language anymore. You know, you're just broken people. Okay, let's not use the word sin. We might offend somebody was broken. Okay. No. He says you sin. So so chapter one, the heathen are without excuse, the pagan, the gentile, he has a witness of creation. Stars are witnessing to him. Chapter 2, the Jew is without excuse. He has witness of the law. He's more responsible. And I get to chapter 3, and he starts off with this whole barrage of Old Testament scriptures. Some of it isn't very pretty. There's none that seek after God. Not, not even one. We've all together been f- filthy. From the top of your head to the sole of your feet. It's all Old Testament verses that he's quoting there. And he comes to the conclusion of it all, and he says something like this, so that every mouth is stopped and the whole world becomes guilty before God. For it is written, um, there is none that does good, no, not even one. He's talking about when he says there's no difference, he's saying whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, doesn't matter. You guys who have been fighting about who's better, you're all scumbags. You've all broken the you're law. All, you're all lost apart from Jesus, apart from the righteousness that God imputes to you, which he's going to talk about in a minute. You see, Romans is not a book about ecclesiology. Anybody know what ecclesiology is? It's a study about what? The church, how it meets. Ephesians is a book of ecclesiology. It's not a book about eschatology. Might as well learn some of these terms. You guys got to... We're in seminary tonight, all right? Eschatology is what? Study of end times. If I read 2 Thessalonians, I, I'm reading all this stuff about end times. And even 1 Thessalonians. Every chapter talks about the coming of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about what's happening in the future. Romans doesn't deal with those things. Romans doesn't deal with eschatology, ecclesiology. It deals with something called soteriology. Anybody ever hear that word? What's it mean? Huh? How you get saved. Soter. Good job. Okay. What is your name? Sierra. I like you. Okay, so soteriology, soter means like savior. See, in, in the Roman culture, they saw Caesar as their savior. He, they would say, Caesar is Lord. But Paul writing to the Philippians, which was a Roman colony where they, a whole bunch of retired soldiers lived, he uses a whole bunch of military terms in that book, but he says, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. Right in the teeth of the Philippians, because when Caesar would come through town, Caesar and Nero, they would get down on one knee and say, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. Paul says, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And then he says, our they prided themselves in the Roman citizenship. You know what he says to the Philippians? But our citizenship is in heaven, where we look for, Greek word, a soter, a Savior, all right, right in the teeth of these guys, he just like keeps using those words. You know, the peace of God will garrison your hearts and minds, guard your hearts and minds, military term. So, Romans is a book about soteriology; it's about salvation. So he he shows again the pagans are without excuse, the Jews without excuse, no difference, Jew or Gentile, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So how do we get saved? We get saved by faith, all right? But Paul knew there would be some, old te- there'd be some Jews that would object to the idea of something as simple as justification by faith or putting your trust in what Jesus did. So he uses two Old Testament examples in chapter 4, Abraham and David. Why does he pick those two guys? Because some of these Jews are saying, well, wait a minute, the law still has to be involved in this. And Paul said, no, it's not the law, it's Jesus. It's Jesus, 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 nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, just Jesus. And just in case you missed it, it's just Jesus. All right? One more thing it's just Jesus. Well, wait a minute, what about the law? So he pulls out in chapter four, Abraham. Abraham could not have gotten saved by keeping the law. You know why? Huh? He lived before the law was ever given. Law well, didn't come until Moses showed up. So, how did Abraham get saved? He tells you in chapter 4 Abraham believed God and it was credited unto him for righteousness. A man years ago walked into a Sunday school that was going on on a Sunday morning in a strange church, and they're having a little adult Bible study, and somebody said, Well, how were the Old Testament saints saved? And the person says, Well, they got saved by keeping the law. And this guy couldn't control himself. He just spoke up and quoted a verse out of the New Testament The Bible says, By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. Oh, well, how did they get saved? Someone else says, Well, they got saved by the sacrifices. So this guy says, well, in Hebrews it says the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And then he said, well, I see that you know your Bible better than we do. How did the Old Testament saints get saved? And this man of God looks at him and he says, well, it says in Romans 4, Abraham believed God and it was credited unto him for righteousness. There's a theological term, David Shacrata knows this one, called imputation. So you guys learned about ecclesiology soteriology, eschatology, imputation. It's where it's, it's not that you on your own are now righteous. Do you know that even if you have believed God, in one sense, you're not righteous, okay? In one sense, because you still sin. The Christian isn't sinless, but he does sin less and less and less. That's sanctification, Okay? But so you on your own are not righteous. But because God watched you by faith look to that cross and see where Jesus took your place, and the one who knew no sin was made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, when you by faith said, I believe that, you know what God did? He imputed or declared you counted you righteous. So God has declared every person in this room, even though you still sin, some of you, He has declared you righteous if you, by faith, have put your faith and trust in Jesus. Amen? This is a theology class tonight. I don't usually preach like this, but it just it's coming out. Okay. So, he didn't know without excuse, chapter 1, pagans. Chapter 2, the Jews without excuse. Chapter 3, they're all guilty, no difference, all have sinned. You're saved by faith. Well, wait a minute. Got some Jews here who are going to say, what about the law? Well, Abraham lived before the law, but he got saved. How did he do it? He believed God, and it was credited unto him for righteousness. Salvation has always been from Adam to now by grace, through faith. In the Old Testament, it was never by the sacrifices. It was never by blood of bulls. Those were just like a temporary covering of saying, God, I believe one day you're going to send your son. And it was looking by faith. Jesus said, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it, and he was glad. He said, search the Scriptures. They testify about me. Those old Pharisees were all caught up in all their legalistic laws and they were even making up ones that weren't in the Bible and adding to it and Jesus no it's me it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus nothing more, nothing less nothing else just Jesus so what about the other guy in Romans 4 he is the second Old Testament example was not Abraham but who David David lived during the time of the law But you know what? He broke it. He committed, we can read about it, murder by killing Uriah, and adultery by sleeping with Bathsheba, who was Uriah's wife. So how could he possibly get saved? He lived during the time of the law, and he broke it big time. But David himself could say, and he quotes it here, Blessed is the man to whom God will not count, there it is, that word impute, count his sins against him. If you have believed in Jesus, it doesn't matter whether you've committed murder or adultery, if you put your faith there, God declares you righteous. And Abraham says, I'm one of those blessed guys. He went through some repentance. He says, create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. But ultimately, he wasn't saved by sort of like turning over a new leaf and changing his own life, which you can't do in your own strength and in your own power. But he was saved by putting his faith in one who could declare him righteous. Martin Luther, studying the book of Romans, was reading it as, and thinking and meditating on it as he was climbing up the steps of a cathedral in Rome trying to earn brownie points with God. And suddenly the verse flashed in his mind, the righteous will live by faith. The just has life through faith. And he said, what am I doing this for? He got up from his knees and started the Reformation. Because the truth of the reality of salvation by grace through faith, not by what we do, but by what Jesus did. There's two religions in the world, doing and done. It's only two. Every other religion is about something you have to do. Christianity is about what Jesus finished on a cross 2,000 years ago. Right? So so chapter 5, then he concludes it all. Since it's by faith, therefore, chapter 5, verse 1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But he goes on to show that you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. In Adam, all died. In Christ, all are made alive. You're lined up behind one of those two guys, either Adam or Jesus. The cool thing is, I believe Adam actually got out of his own line, and he lined up behind Jesus when, by faith, God clothed him with a covering it says, God took coats of skin, singular, one sacrifice to cover both Adam and Eve. And so, chapter 5 is the conclusion, we're saved by faith. Does that mean we can just live as we please? Shall we continue in sin, the end of chapter 5, that grace abounds? No. How shall we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? And that begins chapter 6, which shows that I died to sin through the death of Jesus, But when Jesus rose, I rose too. I don't completely understand that, but he was my representative and he died in my place and he rose in my place and somehow now that I'm in Christ, I died and rose with him. So what am I supposed to do? Therefore, knowing the old man is crucified, knowing the old Tim Cedarland died when Jesus died, count it so, Reckon it so, and now yield or present your bodies as instruments of righteousness. Some translations say weapons of righteousness. God, take my hands, take my feet, take my mouth, and use them as instruments for your glory, as weapons for you. Because I died through the death of Jesus, and I rose with him in newness of life, and now I'm here as your representative if I know the old man is crucified, count it so and reckon, uh, reckon it so and now yield your members as instruments of righteousness. So Romans 6 is knowing, reckoning, and yielding. It's being dead to sin. Romans 7 is being dead to the law. A woman is bound to the law of her husband as long as he's alive. You get married, you're bound in that relationship. But when he dies, it says, she's free to be married to another man. In the same way, you died to the law, he goes on to say. So it isn't that the law isn't important. The Bible says in 1 Timothy, the law is good if you use it lawfully. All right? It again shows what God's standard is, but it's not something that's going to save you. It's not going to help you be good. It's just a standard of what God had. Not bearing falsehood, telling the truth, not, not committing murder, not committing adultery, all those different things that are there. All that Old Testament law showed us that we couldn't possibly keep it. We needed a Savior. The law is something that was designed. Galatians tells us it's our schoolmaster or our pedagogue, okay? What, what, a pedagogue would be somebody who would train a young child when it was little, to grow up into adulthood or maturity. The law was something in the Old Testament to help us, to bring us to Christ. It was our pedagogue to make us realize we needed a Savior and bring us to that point where in maturity we're trusting in Jesus and not in what we do or don't do, but what has already been done on a cross 2,000 years ago. So, Romans 6, I'm dead to sin. Romans 7, I'm dead to the law. Well, then, how do I live? Romans 8 is the spirit filled life. I have now a new power. The same power that was in Jesus and raised him from the dead is now in you, Romans 8 tells me. Okay? And you know, now that I'm lived by the Spirit, which is pretty cool, Jesus said, you know, if you, if you just believe on me, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This, he said, speaking of the Spirit that was not yet sent. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the access. When you fill yourself up with the Word of God, when you fill yourself up with Jesus, what you're full of, and some of you guys are full of it, but you're not full of the right stuff, okay? But when you're full of Jesus, rivers, streams of living water are going to flow out of you, living, life-giving Water of life is going to flow out of you to other people, and you'll have a powerful witness through the Holy Spirit. So, Paul writes in there, he says, I don't even know how to pray as I ought to. You ever feel that way? I don't even know how to pray. But, he says, the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings that can't even be put into a human language. All right? The Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. You don't have to try to live by keeping the law. You don't have to live in the flesh. You died to that sinful life of the past. You now are alive in Jesus, and you've got a new power in you that's actually going to help you live a Christian life, and that's the Holy Spirit. In chapter 9, you Jews, God sovereignly picked you out a long time ago, but you know what? You rejected your Messiah. You turned your back even on the gospel for the most part. There's a remnant that was saved got saved at Pentecost. Some of them are still in this church. But now God seems to be dealing with the Gentiles, but he's using those Gentiles that you despise to actually provoke you to jealousy. And in the end, he's going to have Jew and Gentile as all a part of this church. Okay, It's made up of a mixed company. Jew and Gentile together form one body. There's a whole bunch of stuff in Ephesians about this. Okay? Forming, as it says in Ephesians, one new man or person. It's the church. The Jews and Gentiles, they're not at odds together before. If a Jew saw a Gentile, he wouldn't eat with them. He wouldn't talk with them. Remember the woman at the well? Says to Jesus, how is it that you being a Jew talk to me? I'm a Samaritan. The Jews don't have any dealings with us. We're, we're unclean. We're half-breeds. Paul's saying, "Men." You Christians, there's no longer Jew nor Gentile. It's all one person in Jesus. This is the kind of unity that's going to promote the gospel and cause people to really come to Christ. So start appreciating each other. And he kind of throws in, I like to say, chapter 13, is render unto Caesar the things that be Caesar's. Okay? Pay your taxes. Let every person be subject to the higher powers. Who is in power at this time? Nero. Yeah, Paul saying, honor those in government. God's instituted it. You don't have to go out to an anti-Trump rally or something. You know, if you're a Christian, you pray. You may not agree with who the president is, but you pray for him. And the Bible says we're to first of all pray for those in authority, so that we might live quiet and peaceable lives with all godliness. So let's not get caught up in the resistance movements of today, which were all against this and against that. The most miserable, unhappy people that ever lived on the face of the earth. I've been around 63 years. I've never seen such an angry... Uh, how can I say this? I have to be careful on my, my wording. Angry, um, nonsensical mob... Of people don't even know why. They go interview them on the street. Now, why are you all upset? Well, I don't like this, or I don't like that, or I don't like Trump. Well, what is it that you don't like about him? Well, I don't know. I just don't like him. Why don't you like him? Well, so and so doesn't like him, and they're cool, so I just do what they do. And we have this group think. Nobody can think for themselves, you know, it's a mob mentality. But as Christians, we're separate from that. We march to the beat of a different drummer. We don't necessarily get caught all up in the politics of the day. We're not looking to some man to solve all of our problems. We're looking to Jesus, who's going to come and set it all right. His enemies are going to become His footstool. I'm on that side. Okay? So, Romans 13. And then Romans 14, I forgot Romans 12, render to God the things that be God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, in view of all that Jesus has done that you just read about in the first eight chapters of the book, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your only intelligent response. In other words, in view of all that God did, the only intelligent response there is is to say, Jesus, here I am, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Here I am. Take me and use me. Okay? Then, Romans 13, we said, render to Caesar things to be Caesar's. Respect those in authority, kings. Romans 14 is, and the end of 13 and 14 again, is this mutual appreciation and love and respect of, he says things like this, live in harmony with each other. Receive each other, but not to doubtful disputations. If some guy has a hang-up about eating meat, probably a Jew, receive him anyway. And you guys that think it's perfectly fine to drink wine, don't look on the guy who doesn't because he's still hung up on Old Testament law. Love him in Jesus. Because where we're trying to get in this whole thing is that with one mouth and one heart, we're all bringing glory to God. That's Romans chapter by chapter, okay? Now, I wanna go briefly, section by section. The first section is condemnation, big word. We're in theology class today. Condemnation means what? It's a word about like, we think of it as oh, he condemned that person. But it's actually kind of a word that has to do with judgment that you are under condemnation. That is, in sin, this world is condemned. Okay? Jesus said this, He that doesn't believe is condemned already. So if you don't know Jesus, you're already under condemnation. If you're in Jesus, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? Right? That Romans 8 begins with no condemnation, and it ends with no separation. Who can separate me from the love of Christ? Demons, principalities, there's no power on earth or in hell that can separate me from Jesus. I am in Christ because of my faith, not in myself, but in him alone through grace. Undeserved but a God who saw me and looked at me in my sin and said, I'm going to send my son to die for you in love. So God is loving, but he's also righteous. And there's a difference. If a guy murdered your mother or your best friend and he got off the hook with nothing, maybe you were in court and you said, I forgive you. Would it be fair? Would it be just? That the judge let him go. No. So there's character of God. One of God's character is love. And people in the world say, well, wait a minute, if God is love, why doesn't He just forgive every sinner that ever lived? That would not be just. One of God's other characteristics is righteous. And I think the key verse in the whole book of Romans is Romans 1:17, when he talks about the gospel, in it. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For it is written, the just or the righteous will live by his faith. The gospel reveals the righteousness. And there's three aspects of that righteousness. Think about this. First of all, God himself is not only love, but he's also righteous. He's holy. So he can't look upon sin. The old hymn writer put it this way. God could not pass the sinner by. His sin demands that he must die. But in the cross of Christ we see how God can save, yet righteous be. Think about that. All right? So, not only is he a loving God, but he's righteous and he can't wink or overlook sin, and that's why that character in the gospel was revealed. God couldn't just look at, Kelsey here tonight and say, Kelsey, all those sins you did, I just forgive you. No. His righteousness would never have been revealed in that. His righteousness was only revealed when he said, Kelsey, you're a sinner, and that sin has to be paid for. Every transgression of the law, the Bible says, has a just recompense of reward. So somebody's got to pay for it. But so that I can give you complete forgiveness and be right about it, I'm going to send Jesus to pay for it. And now that that's paid, you can go. You're free. There's a lot more to it than just freedom, that's being part of in Christ and a part of God's family for all eternity, right? There was, a, there was a crime committed years ago when crimes didn't have big fees, and the judge looked at it, and the person who was sitting there, an old, a guy who had committed this crime, Said, "How do?" You, and the judge said, "How do you plead?" He said, "Guilty." And the judge says, "The fine is fifty dollars." And the guy said, "I don't have any money to pay." The judge got out from behind the little stand or booth thing where the judge sits. I forget what you call him, the bench. And then he took off his robe. And he walked over to the clerk of the court, pulled out his wallet and extracted his own $50 and paid it and told the guy, you can go. That's righteousness. That's justice. If you let him go without paying a fine, that wouldn't be righteous because God has a standard and we've all sinned and come short of that standard. So someone had to make up the difference and it was only the sinless son of God who could and take our punishment in our place, okay? He's the Messiah, It tell, tells you here. He's the son of David, chapter 1. He is, the, he is the one who demonstrated himself to be the son of God by raising from the dead, okay? Now, he's going to continue on, and we're going to get to it in a minute, but I'm just giving you a section, okay? So the first section, all the way up into the middle of chapter 3, verse 22 from chapter 1, is condemnation. We were all under it. But from then on, the subject becomes justification through what Jesus did on the cross. We're justified. But then I go a little farther and I get to Romans 8 and the subject now becomes sanctification. Romans 6, 7, and 8. Okay? Sanctification. And then... If I go a little farther and um, I get to Romans 9, 10, 11, this whole thing about Jew and Gentile, it's explanation. Let me tell you what I'm doing here. When Paul's done explaining what happens with Jew and Gentile and how God used both of them to benefit each other, he says his theology turns into a doxology. He says, who has known the mind of the Lord? And then he goes, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, God, you're doing it all right. It's beyond human comprehension, but it results in praise for all eternity. And I believe when we get to heaven and we see how, why God really did everything the way he did it, even though it didn't make sense, we're going to say, God, you did it all right because His righteousness, the fact that He does everything right is revealed in the gospel. The fact that we have now been made righteous is revealed in the gospel. How that God could save, yet righteous be. All right? So you have, and then you have, after explanation, Romans 9, 10, 11, the rest of it, through chapter 15, is now... We could say all kinds of theological words, but I'm going to put it exhortation. Present your body a living sacrifice. Use the gifts God's given you. Live in harmony with each other. Receive each other. Don't pass judgment on each other about who eats meat and who drinks wine and all this kind of stuff, right? He even says this, the kingdom of God. This is a verse not to forget. The kingdom of God is not what you eat or what you drink, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So just remember that. Kingdom of God. When you see somebody doing something you don't like, like, oh, she wears too much makeup. Oh. Did you see that kind of revealing outfit that person she was wearing? Oh, I'm better than that. No, 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 no. Kingdom of God is not what you eat or what you drink. It's It's not how you dress. Or not dress, I mean not encouraging you to, you know, flaunt things and draw attention to yourself in a way that you shouldn't. But, But that's not what the kingdom is about. It's not about a list of rules of what you do or don't do. It's about righteousness and peace. Jew and Gentile in a church, black and white, men and women, all different kinds of backgrounds, rich and poor, living in peace. And harmony with each other so that with one heart and one mouth, they can give glory to God. Okay? So, condemnation, justification, sanctification, explanation, and finally exhortation. You guys stop hating each other. Stop rivalry, stop Jews quit looking down at Gentiles and saying, I'm a Jew. I'm better than you. And Gentiles stop looking at Jews and saying, I'm a Gentile, and God's true with you Jews. God has a purpose in all, and he's going to be glorified in all. And when you understand it, you're going to say, oh, the depths of the riches, of the wisdom, of the knowledge of God, his ways are past finding out. And your theology will become a doxology. finish up with the last sermon. You guys have been really, really patient, but I did say that I'm going to take one word and I'm going to go through it in four different places. First place is in Romans 3 when he's given the whole list of Old Testament verses. He says something like this. He says in verse 3, chapter 3, verse 14, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. I'm looking at this one word, it's mouths. Okay? Before you get saved, your mouths full of cursing and bitterness. Isaiah says, the wicked are like the troubled sea casting up mire, there is no peace, says the Lord about the wicked, or for the wicked. So, every mouth, you know, what kind of mouth do you have? You have a potty mouth or a praise mouth? All right, my son who used to play quarterback at Peninsula years ago, he got an MVP, I'm bragging on my son here, okay. Uh, Three out of four of his high school years had a lot of uh, amazing opportunities to play in college ball and chose not to. But as a freshman, he walked in and people said, how come you don't swear? You never say the F word. We'll give you 10 bucks if you say the F word. Hey, I'll throw in a few more bucks. You know, started off, I'll give you a dollar if you say it. And then it went to 10 bucks. And he said, no, I'm just not going to say that. Well, why not? Because I don't. He couldn't be bought. Later on in his senior year when he, the coaches gave him in charge of all the warm-ups and calisthenics and all that stuff to be warmed up before the during practice before they go out and scrimmage, he could. He ran the, the team and he said, It's ten push-ups if you say the F word. Tables are turned. Okay. Your mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. I don't know what your mouth is like. I go a little bit farther, and I get to verse 22, and it's like that every mouth may be stopped. Actually, uh, verse 19, that every mouth may be silent, and the whole world becomes guilty before God. I have a question for you. Has your mouth ever been stopped? Years ago, it was a guy, H. Ironside, who was a famous preacher. He was this kid, and he was reading his Bible. When he was 14 years old, he read the Bible through 14 times, one for every year he was, but he wasn't a Christian yet. He taught a Sunday school class in his church, and these fiery evangelists came and stayed in the home where his mother was. She would take in people who, as they traveled through, and they would ask him, you know, Hey, his name was Harry. Harry, are you saved yet? Are you born again? His mother said, well, he teaches a Sunday school class. And the old evangelist says, well, worse still, Harry, has your mouth ever been stopped? Before God first opens a mouth, he first stops it. Has your mouth ever been stopped? It says here that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world becomes guilty before God. i got to recognize I need to have my mouth stopped and recognize, God, what you say is true and what I'm saying isn't. So I want to get in agreement with you. Did you know part of one definition of repentance is taking sides with God against yourself? God, what you say is true. I'm on your side. It's a change of mind. All right? Every mouth's done. But then I get to Romans 10 and 9. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. In other words, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he was... One who created the worlds. Because Colossians says, without him was not anything made that was made. Uh, Actually, uh, John 1 says that. Colossians says, all things were made by him and for him. You weren't just created by God, but you're actually created for God. And you're never happy, you're never fulfilled until you're fulfilling the purpose that God created you for. Amen? Okay. So, if, if you confess with your mouth... Jesus as Lord. Jesus, I believe you're the creator God. I believe you were the Messiah, the Christ. You came into the world as a baby born from a, a born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, went to the cross, made full atonement for sin, went into the grave. Three days later, bodily rose from the dead, ascended back into heaven. You're coming again. And one day, every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess that you're Lord. And so right now, I want to just confess and say, God, I am a sinner, and I need Jesus. And I want to own Jesus, that you are now my Lord and Savior. If you will confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, not might be, you will be. For with the heart, he goes on to say in verse 10, man believes unto, here's that word again, righteousness. God now counts you righteous. He imputes his righteousness on you. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Have you ever done that? You're confessing, Jesus, you're my Lord. If you haven't, you should tonight. Do it before it's too late. And last of all, I get to that verse, as we already have quoted a number of times, Romans 15, 6. So that with one heart and one, some translations say voice or mouth, you together, he's talking in this case contextually, Jew and Gentile, glorify God. From a mouth that's full of cursing and bitterness to a mouth that's now bringing glory to God. Why? Because your mouth got stopped and you recognize that you needed Jesus, that you were a sinner and you had no righteousness of your own. You were naked before God, a holy God, in all of your sin, exposed. As it says in Hebrews, all things are naked and open before the eye of Him with whom we have to do. But then you looked and saw the righteousness that flowed from the cross, where the righteousness of God was revealed through the gospel, and you by faith accepted it and believed in it. Okay. And now your mouth can bring glory to God. Not until. If you're not a Christian, don't go around trying to praise the Lord and sing all these songs about worshiping Jesus. Because you worship, you know not what. Okay? But if you know Jesus, now you can give glory to God. And that's why Paul says in chapter 1, I'm going to finish with this. He says, 4, verse 19, verse 14 he says in chapter 1, I am a debtor. Okay? This is Paul's obligation. I'm a debtor both to the Jews and to the Greeks, the Gentiles. To the Greeks and the barbarians. I'm a debtor to those people. I have an obligation because what God did in my life, you all have that same obligation. He says, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome also. Some people say, Rome had all these amazing philosophies in that day. But Paul says, and they say, oh, Paul's afraid to go up to Jerusalem and pin something so simple as the gospel against all those philosophies. Paul says, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you, Rome, also, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That's That's, some translations just say gospel. Other translations say the gospel of Christ. I like that. Okay? So, you get... When he says the gospel of Christ, you have his obligation. I'm a debtor to you, who are the Jew and the Gentile. I'm ready to preach the gospel to you in Rome also. You have the origin of the gospel, it's the gospel of Jesus. All right? Then you have the operation of the gospel it's the power of God. Paul says, I'm not afraid to take it up there. It's the only thing that will change lives. Years ago, I went to the, used to go to the women's prison a lot here, and one of the psychiatrists came to me one day. I would eat lunch in there with them, and he saw me at the lunchroom, and he said, you know, you're the only one who has the answers for these people. I said, well, I'm surprised. You're, you're you know, a psychiatrist. You're a shrink, and you're telling me I'm the one who has the answers. I mean, I was feeling a little smug inside because I, I knew that was true, but I wanted to hear what he had to say. And he said, I watch people that come, and I try to help them, and they go out, and they very, very rarely ever change. But you go in there, and you deal with these people, and I see transformation. Those people's lives are being changed. Why? Because the gospel is more powerful than any philosophy of the world, any clever trick of a shrink to try to change anybody. It's powerless. Remember the man among the tombs? He said, they tried to chain him up, and no man, it says, could even tame him. Society was helpless to deal with that guy until Jesus showed up and cast the demons out. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So... You have the origin of the gospel, it's the gospel of Christ. You have the operation of the gospel, it's the power of God, it changes lives. You have the outcome of the gospel, power of God unto salvation, it brings salvation. It causes God to impute righteousness to you when you believe it. And finally, you have the outreach of the gospel to everyone who believes. To the Jew first. Remember the order right after Pentecost, it was to Jews and also to the Gentiles. He's writing to mostly Gentiles, but he throws the Jew first in there. A little bit of a jab, okay? You guys better appreciate each other. That's the book of Romans. Amen? Hope that whets your appetite. That was a pretty quick crash course with not a lot of preparation. But love you guys. Get into the Word. Serve and follow Jesus. Amen? Amen. God bless.